We've been studying through the book of Acts. We've been going chapter by chapter, verse by verse through this incredible book. Hopefully you found it interesting, enjoyable. God's speaking to us as we go. It's called Acts or Acts of the Apostles because it covers the time period from when Jesus goes back to heaven for the next 35 years. So one of the things that, that I, I like to, to mention every week is the timeline. So there on the top of your outline, one of the things that we say is that the book of Acts begins in the year 30 AD. Again, that's the year Jesus dies, is buried, raised from the dead, and then ascends back to heaven. The Holy Spirit is given. And uh, so that begins in 30 AD, but by the time you come to Acts chapter 9, it's somewhere around AD 36. And some people say a little bit later, later on in the year, but it's, there's been about six, six or seven years by the time that, that we come to this chapter. Today we're going to cover the part of the book of Acts where the man that we would know as Paul right here, he's still known as Saul, where he is converted. And so we're going to talk about that today. Up to this point in the book of Acts, Paul, or Saul as we know him, has been the greatest persecutor of the church. He's overseen the killing of the first martyr, which was Stephen. We looked at that in Acts chapter 7. But one of the things that I find very interesting is here he's going to be known as Saul. Now later on he's going to be known as Paul, but his name Saul comes from the Hebrew, and there in your outline it means asked for or demanded, and it can mean death. And some Bible commentators say death in the sense that of being a destroyer, which is what we've seen in his life up to this point. Another way that his word can be tra- or his name can be translated from the Hebrew, there on your outline is just the word beggar. Does everybody see that? Now that's important because when you look at Saul before he meets Jesus, he's uh, demanding, he's, he's uh, a murderer of the church, uh, he, he's a uh, persecutor of the church, but uh, we'd also say a beggar in the sense that he'd be spiritually bankrupt. Well, later on as he becomes a believer, he's not going to go by his Hebrew name, he's going to go by his, his Roman name, which would be from the Latin, and so we will know him for the rest of the book as Paul. Now Paul just means there in your outline, little or small, small or little. So the idea is uh, before he was demanding, before he was this, he was that, but now as he follows Jesus he's going to say, I'm small. I'll I'll let him be big and and I will just be small. So uh, we also see that later on as he writes about this time in his life before he was a believer, there in your outline to the churches in Galatia, he said, you've heard about my previous way of life in Judaism, of how, I in, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and I tried to destroy it. And so we've seen that. We'll see a little bit of that today. So uh, as we get into this today, I think that there's some things that the Lord might want to say to us as we look at what God is doing in Paul's life. So we're going to pick it up, chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, and it's going to say, now Saul, I I might say Paul as I read this just because uh, that's uh, how we're going to know him. So now Saul or Paul, still breathing threats of murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. Now this high priest is going to be there in Jerusalem. He's the same high priest who years before ordered the execution of Jesus so, or, or orchestrated that. And he asked for letters 
from him to the synagogues at Damascus. That's going to be in Syria, an entirely different country, and we'll talk about that in a moment. That if he found anyone belonging to the way. Now I want you to underline the way. This is about six years after the church is birthed. We're going to find that um, the believers will not be called Christians for many more years after this. But at this point they're called the way. And uh, this will be mentioned several times in the book of Acts. Called the way because uh, it was held that it wasn't just that somebody embraced a certain set of beliefs, but they were following somebody. He was the way, and it was very, very exclusive. Both men and women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. In those days under the Roman Empire, which the world, known world was under, if somebody was in Jerusalem and they were Jewish and they did something that would break the law of the Jewish people and they were to run to another country under the Roman Empire, the Jewish people had permission by the empire to go wherever they were at, grab them and bring them back in chains and and try them there in Jerusalem. So he is in Jerusalem and he wants to go to Damascus. Let me just give some perspective here. Um, you have the, the, um, the nation of Israel, and we've looked at this map many times. Jerusalem is down at the bottom. And one of the things that we've said is that the entire country of Israel is the size of Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach counties. It's very small. And so, but just outside of Israel, you, you have Syria and uh, you have Damascus. And so Damascus is the, is the city that Paul is going to. It's about 140 miles from, from Jerusalem at this point. So verse 3, it goes on to say, now as he was traveling, it happened that as he was approaching Damascus, which is in Syria, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now in, in the Bible, in the New Testament, when somebody's name is used two times, it's not a, a statement of anger. So when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, they're supposed to be waiting for him on Palm Sunday, but they're not. And so he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. It, it, it means his heart is breaking. When he goes to the, the house of Miriam and, and Martha and Lazarus, uh, Martha is complaining that Mary is you know, not, not serving. And, and so Jesus says, Martha, Martha. It's not anger, it's just deep emotion. And so here what we find in verse 3 says he was traveling, it happened as he was approaching Damascus, suddenly there was a light from heaven flashed around him, he fell to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So what we find here is that Jesus confronts Saul or Paul with his true crime. He thinks he is doing God a favor by arresting Christians, believers, uh, having them put to death. And what we find is that Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? From Jesus' standpoint, his viewpoint, when somebody harms a believer, when somebody tries to stand in the way of what God is doing, Jesus takes it as a personal attack on him. On him. So his, his true crime is that although he thinks he's doing God a favor, he's attacking Jesus, he's actually attacking God. Now I've put verses 5 and 6 on your outline, and the reason that I did that is some of your translations will be missing certain phrases that are very important. 
So here he falls to the ground. He recognizes that he's having an encounter with God. He thought he was serving God, but now he finds out that he is persecuting. Uh, And so he says, there in your outline, so he said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus. Now, just very quickly, who are you, Lord? He said, who are you, God? And God said, I am Jesus. When we say Lord, we're saying God. So all Christians believe that Jesus is God, and everyone else believes that Jesus is not God. That's the dividing line between everything that is Christian and everything that is non-Christian. So the Lord, God said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, he realizes, man, have I missed it, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? So he says, who are you, Lord? And the Lord says, I am Jesus. That's the first question of conversion. Who are you, Lord? And he's very specific. Jesus doesn't say, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm this, I'm that, I'm you know, one of the ways. He says, I am Jesus. Very, very specific. And Jesus says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, a goad was a sharp stick. If you were plowing with your ox and your ox began to veer in a certain way, you'd stick them with the stick to move them back in the direction that you wanted them to go. So apparently, as Paul is persecuting the church, he keeps having the sense of something's not right. And uh, basically he's kicking against the goads God's leading. So here God is confronting very straightforward. But I, I love the, the next uh, question that he asks, and some of your Bibles don't have this in, in, uh, in those verses, but it's there in the original. He asks the question of true conversion. Here's the, the question of true conversion. You want to write this down. What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? You and I live in a generation where there are many people who, when they come to Jesus, and I would say supposedly, their question is not, Lord, what do you want me to do? In their walk with what they believe is Jesus, their question is more, uh, I wouldn't say question, but their viewpoint is more like, Jesus, you come alongside of me to help me accomplish my goals, my dreams, my desires, because for them it's all about them. And they're all in with Jesus up until Jesus says, here's what I want you to do. And it's at that point where the conversation ends. Don't let that be you. He asks the right question. It's the question of true conversion. What is it that you want me to do? Verse 6, we pick it up in our Bibles, and uh, he gets the response and it says, but get up and enter the city and it will be told to you what you must do. Very quickly, we won't talk about it. We talked about it last week, but when God speaks, he always speaks very specifically. And you want to write that down. Never speaks mystically. God says, get up, go to the city. I will tell you what you are to do. Very specific. Last week we talked about how some people say, God is saying, and it's kind of, and and when God speaks in the Bible, it's always very, very specific. The other thing that we mentioned is that God directs one step at a time. Verse 6, he says, get up, enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. God doesn't tell him, here's step two, three, four, five. This is just the next step. Many people miss God's working and will in their life because God doesn't tell them step two, three, four, and five. 
He says, this is the next step. And because they can't see beyond that, they won't take that first step. Verse 7 says, the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice. uh, Some of your Bibles will say noise. They don't actually hear what's being said. They just hear the noise or the voice, but seeing no one. But Saul got up from the ground and and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. So three days, he's, he's blinded, he can't see anything. Uh, they all hear something. God has spoken to Saul, but he's not speaking to the rest of the crowd. They have no idea what's been said at this point. He's taken by the hand to Damascus. Now we're going to find that the synagogues who were in alignment with Saul, Paul, wanted to be hostile to the church, they knew Saul was coming. And we're going to find out that out in just a moment. So the question is, if you're going to Damascus and you're going there to grab believers, arrest them, and pull them back to Jerusalem, and you've already sent people ahead of you to set up where you're going to stay, where do you stay after you've had this conversion experience? Well, apparently we're going to find that he still has to stay with the people that he set up the accommodations with. It's going to be an awkward couple days, I think. We'll we'll see as we travel through. Paul is in an intense time of prayer, as it says he's not uh, eating or drinking at this point. Three days go by, and verse 10, it says, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Now Ananias is just a very common name in that time period. Ananias was members of the the high priest. Um, It was Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5, and here it's another Ananias. Just a very common name. So this is a believer in, in Damascus. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. Would you say that God speaks very specifically when he has something to say? And and so keep that in mind when somebody comes up and you say, you know, the Lord is leading me and it's very misty. That's not the Lord. When God has something to say, he says it. Okay, he he, he just says it. Um, Verse 12, he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come come in and lay hands on him. And so he's seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in, lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. He might regain his sight. Now I love this because um, Paul has had an experience on the road. Here he has a second vision, but the second vision, again, very specific. A man named Ananias is going to come and he's going to, to speak. He's going to speak to you and, and, and pray for you. So write this down and we'll just talk about it for a moment. When God is working, he is confirming. Here's how you know it's the Lord. You have Ananias, the Lord speaks to Ananias and says, here's what I want you to do. Over here, God is speaking to Paul, Saul, and he says, a man named Ananias is going to come over and pray. So God is speaking to both people. With me so far? If you're like me, I've been in environments where people will come up and they will say, uh, Dan, the Lord has told me to tell you. The way that you know it's the Lord or not the Lord is that God is speaking to both sides. 
And so he doesn't just speak to one without speaking to another. Somebody comes up to you and says, the Lord has told me to tell you. Now, how many of you have ever had that happen to you? Okay, if you've ever gone to junior high church camp, it's wonderful. It's the best pickup line in the world. You walk up to a girl. Baby, the Lord has told me. I've had a vision. Am I the only one who's ever used that line? I've matured, I've matured. But anyways, if, if, if God's not speaking to you, you don't have to receive it because God speaks to both. He doesn't just speak to one. So Ananias here is not excited about this little opportunity. So verse 13, he says, but Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man and how much harm he did to your saints in Jerusalem and that he has the authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. So word of Saul's arrival had come before him. So Ananias, he's explaining this to the Lord. You know, Lord, maybe you don't know this, but he's, he's, he's not been a good person. My two favorite verses in this are verses 15 and 16. And uh, if you're a parent or you're in a, a challenging marriage, uh, I, I hope this resonates. So verse 15, but the Lord said to him, that's to Ananias, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine. Some of your Bibles will say chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. First to the Gentiles, then the kings, and then to the sons of Israel. What I love about this passage is that Paul up to this point, has been the chief persecutor of the church. He's overseen the murder of, of the first martyrs, the believers. And what I love about this is that God doesn't call him by who he has been. God calls him by who he is going to be. And what I love about this, he doesn't say, yeah, he's a murderer, he's an idiot, he's this. God says, no, he's my chosen instrument, he's my chosen vessel. What I also love about this, and parents don't miss this, when God wants to speak to Paul on the road, he speaks to him specifically and, and he deals with the situation. Saul, you are persecuting me. We need to talk about this. But when God speaks to somebody else about Saul, all he will say is, he's my chosen vessel. Make sure, sometimes you have to deal with your children uh, you know, on the issue at hand, but make sure that what you're speaking about them is always the desired future that you have, that you desire for them. So God says, he's my chosen vessel. So go ahead and write this down. God called Saul his chosen vessel long before there was evidence of anything worthy in Saul to choose. God spoke his future, not who he was, who he had been. Verse 17, it says, So Ananias departed and entered the house after laying hands on him and said, Brother Saul, Saul's a believer, the Lord Jesus appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, and he sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized. And he took food, and he was strengthened. 
So for now, for several days, he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. Paul at this point assumes that God's going to use him to reach the Jewish people. We're going to find that God has a very, very different view. Verse 20, 20 says, immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue saying that he is the son of God. Now very quickly, when it says that he is the son of God, in our culture it would mean one thing. In their culture, when he says, I'm the son of God, it means that he is God. So go ahead and write that down and uh, we'll unpack that. Paul taught that Jesus is God. Now he says the son of God, but he means God. Here's, here's how we know that. In their culture, when you said, I'm the son of, it was very, very different than our understanding. So in John's gospel, chapter five, there in your outline, Jesus said to them, my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder. And it says the Jews, that means religious leadership. They were all Jewish. Tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God, you want to underline God, his own father, making himself equal with God. Does everybody see that? So he's teaching that Jesus is God, is the idea. We wouldn't get that in our culture, but in their culture they did. Verse 21, and all those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on, and I've underlined this name, does your Bible say this name? That's going to be important because what we're going to find is that these people are not being converted and uh, they're being confounded, but they're not being converted, and they don't even want to say the name of Jesus. So they're just this name is the idea. And who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests. But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. What we're going to find is that he's confounding the Jewish people, he's winning the argument, but he's not winning their hearts is the idea. And we'll see that as we go. Now, verse 22 again, it says, Saul kept increasing in his strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Between verse 22 and 23, there on your outline, there's going to be a three-year gap, and you want to write that down, which is going to go from 36 AD to 39 AD. Some people would say 37 to 40 AD, but there's a three-year uh, three, three gap. In a letter to the churches in Galatia, Paul would say this, but when God who set me apart was pleased so that I might preach to him among the Gentiles, I did not consult with any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before me, before I was. I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. And then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem. At this point, Paul leaves Damascus, goes to Arabia, pretty much a, a desert community type experience alone with the Lord, and that's where God teaches him. He comes back to Damascus after three years, and then in verse 23, it says, when many days had elapsed. Does your Bible say something like that? Many days here is going to mean three years had gone by. Uh, When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. How many of your Bibles say to kill him? Good, yeah, and that's what they want to do. So his ministry to the Jewish community is not as effective as he would hope. They want to kill you, 
that's not an effective ministry. Verse 24, but their plot became known to Saul, and he was also watching at the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him. Now, his, he doesn't want to, the idea is, but the disciples said, you got to get out of here. Took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. Now, when he came to Jerusalem, he goes back to Jerusalem. He was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. Underline that. Not believing that he was a disciple. So here's what we find and you write this down. For Paul, following Jesus would mean rejection from old friends. If they want to kill you, would you say that's rejection? That's rejection. Rejection from old friends and being misunderstood by his new friends. They don't believe that he's actually become a disciple. Paul could have said at this point, I didn't sign up for this. I mean, Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. You should be forgiving. I'm changed. Why can't you see that? Instead, what Paul's going to do is later on, he's going to write there in your outline, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. He had to endure the rejection, the mistrust of the believers uh, of who he's now become. We find here that even the apostles did not believe that Paul had become a believer. So verse 27, Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, how he had talked to him, and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. So it's interesting to me that, that um, you know, you'd think that Peter and the gang, as spiritual as they were, as in tune, as filled with the Holy Spirit, they would know that Paul, Saul, had actually been converted. But at this point, they don't even believe. So Barnabas, uh, somebody that we met back in chapter 4, there on your outline, we met, we met Barnabas in chapter 4. His name wasn't actually Barnabas. It says, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Now what I love about Barnabas in the New Testament is every time we see him, he's always believing the best about somebody. So he believes. He says he's saved. We believe it. So he brings Paul, Saul, to the apostles. Later on, Paul will write about this experience and he will say, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and I stayed with him for 15 days. What this means is that this is not going to be a long visit in Jerusalem. We'll see why. I saw none of the other apostles. Apparently they'd all have moved on. They're out sharing the gospel in other places. Only James, the Lord's brother. So only Peter is, is really in town. Verse 28, and he was with them moving about freely in Jerusalem and speaking up boldly in the name of the Lord. And uh, once again, we find early in Paul's ministry, verse 29, he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. I, I love reading this. He was arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. The, the idea is that Paul's going to be very frustrated because this is the group that he wants to reach. But God has a different calling. So what, what I wanted to say on this is that Paul here has this desire to reach a certain group of people. 
early in his ministry, he's arguing, arguing, arguing. He's winning the argument. He's losing, losing their hearts. And uh, what we see in this is that the way that God is going to reveal his will to Paul and to the rest of us is that he's going to give Paul what we're going to call a God-given vision. You want to write that down, a God-given vision. It's very common here at the church when somebody comes in, they have a program or we're dealing with, you know, dealing with architects or whatever we're dealing with, they'll sit down and they'll look at me and they'll say, well, well Dan, what is your vision for this church? Well, I'm here to tell you that my vision doesn't matter. It's really what's God's vision for this church. Because what we're going to see is that Paul has a vision for his ministry, but it's not God's vision. And, and so Paul has to get God's vision for what it is that God wants to do. So what we see, Paul is going to describe this in Acts 22 there in your outline. He says, you know, it happened when I returned to Jerusalem. That's where he is right now. And I was praying in the temple. Bold move for Paul in that time. And I fell into a trance. And I saw him saying to me, this is the Lord speaking, make haste, get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. Paul then responds by arguing with the Lord. God, this is what I'm called to do. I should be reaching, I'm the guy that you'd want to use to reach these people. So notice he begins to argue. He said, Lord, they themselves understand that in synagogue after synagogue, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. And do you notice that I put dot, dot, dot there? Now, the reason I put dot, dot, dot so that you read it later on, because Paul continues with his argument as to why he should be the guy that God chooses to reach the, the Jewish community. That was his passion. But God says, but that's not my vision for you. So it goes on, it says, and he said to me, go for I will send you away. I will send you far away to the, what's that word? Gentiles, Gentiles. Paul's vision was that he wanted to reach the Jewish community. He's going to be very ineffective at that. God's vision for him was that he would be used to reach the Gentile community. So God says, go, I'm sending you to the Gentiles. Now, what we notice here is that God gives a God-given vision. And many times um, in our society, you know, what's your vision is kind of a big buzz word phrase in our community. Um, but go ahead and, and write this down. We're going to find that God's will, his vision, was not revealed, it was revealed not by looking within, but through time with him. Paul is spending time in prayer, not looking within. So if you want to have God's vision for your life, you're going to have to spend some time with him. It's not about looking within you. It's spending time with him where he reveals that. We're also going to find that God's will was revealed uh, by confirmation from godly counsel. And you want to write that down. God's will was revealed by confirmation, confirmation by godly counsel. Verse 30 says, when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and they sent him away to Tarsus. Um, everybody recognizes that Paul is horrible at reaching the Jewish community. And here they want to kill him. And so the godly counsel around him says, we need to get you out of here. This is not your calling. 
So good so far? Here's what we tell people who want to get married. We say, if you're going to get married, there's some things that you need to know. First of all, you have to be in spiritual alignment if you're going to marry somebody. You, a believer, don't marry a non-believer. It never works out. It always leads to frustration. Second of all, you want to be physically attracted to that person. Never marry somebody that you're not physically attracted to. Can I get an amen on that? <laughs> never marry somebody that you're not physically attracted to. Uh, and then thirdly, you have to really enjoy them. You've got to enjoy being with them. But you want to make sure that all, the, all that is true, you want to have the godly counsel around you saying, this is a good thing. When Cheryl and I were dating, all the things were true. She was incredibly physically attracted to me. She was... Uh, <laughs> what? She's only human. <laughs> but... <laughs> it's my sermon (laughs) we go with my illustrations how I choose to use it but here's the thing What, what what really sealed it was all that was true but it was the counsel around us saying this is a good thing this is a good thing and so 23 years almost later I'm very glad for that you don't want to have any of that missing so there's a God given vision not found by looking within time with God, but then it's confirmed through godly counsel. So they put him and they send him up to Tarsus. Now let me just share this real quick. He's down in Jerusalem. They send him up to Caesarea. They send him all the way up. You see Syria up at the top here. And uh, so he's going to go all the way up. And Tarsus is all the way up in modern day Turkey. There's a Jewish community there, but there is, um, it's primarily Gentile. So he's going to be relatively safe from those who would want to kill him. So he goes up there. Now, this is very important. The next time that we will see Paul in the story will be in Acts chapter 11. There on your outline, I put the verse, Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So here's the point here. We're not going to hear from Paul from this point on for another seven years. You want to write that down. So the next time we hear from Paul, we don't hear from him for seven more years, and it's going to be in the year of about 47 AD. So you want to write that down. So it's a long time for Paul. Uh, God is going to take 10 full years to prepare Paul. Three years in the Arabian desert, not a whole lot going on. Comes back to Jerusalem, they want to kill him send him up to Tarsus, another seven years, nobody hears him, and, and God is preparing him in that time. So here's what we learn, and please write this down. The greater the calling, the longer the preparation. And so before God gives Saul a ministry that's going to turn the world upside down, he's going to take a large amount of time, great amount of time to prepare him. The greater the calling, the longer the preparation. Aren't you glad that your surgeon didn't get qualified by having a three-month correspondence course? Long preparation is the idea. Now, as we wrap this up, Paul probably thought, my life's passing me by. Nothing's happening. I have this desire to reach people. I want to preach. I want to go. And God has them right there in quiet in the time of preparation. And 
as God is preparing him, he can't see what it is that God wants to do in the future. And again, he's probably, probably thinking, my life is passing me by. Nothing's happening. But God has him right where he wants him to be for the ministry that he's going to have in the future. And in this case, it's going to be seven years off the beaten path. The question that Paul has to answer in that seven years, although he has this great desire to get out there and get going, is the same question that you and I have to answer when we find ourselves sensing that God wants to do something, but he has us in this place right now. And here's the question, you want to write this down. Am I willing to wait in faith while God prepares me? Most people aren't willing to wait in faith while God prepares. And many people accept God's second best or the second best, not God's first best in their life. Waiting in faith means I'm trusting the Lord now in this situation, even though I can't see what he's going to do down the road. You don't, you don't want to miss what, what it is that God wants to do because you want it now. And, and God sometimes takes a while to prepare. Can I take 30 seconds and tell you a quick story? Yes. I'm going to. <laughs> um, my parents were separated before I was born. And uh, so I didn't meet my dad until I was 22. When my dad was 22. He had a daughter who was 18 months old. Her name is Daisy. And, uh, and uh, she, she was from the third marriage. I'm from the first marriage. Seven years later, my dad goes away to prison for 10 years, and I'm the next of kin. So I have this daughter, and it was the first time in my life where I couldn't just load everything up in my car and go somewhere else and do whatever I wanted to do. It was the first time in my life where there was somebody else depending on me. And so every morning, I'd get up, I'd get Daisy, I'd take her to school. At the end of the day, I'd have to be there to pick her up. And you know, when you have an eight-year-old or a nine-year-old at home, you can't just drop her off at home and then go do whatever you want to do all night. I was a single guy. So it was a very lonely time for me for several years, for several years. And, and so my existence in those several years was I had that sense that, God, I, wanted, I want you to do something. And I couldn't see what God was going to do, but I just knew that he had called me to be faithful in that situation. So it was in that time, I'm not a TV watcher at all, that I decided I would just read one book every week. And I just learned what I could. And, and uh, I've been doing that for about 30 years. And it's been a wonderful thing. And during that time, for several years, uh, I, I, I just decided I was going to memorize a chapter of the Bible a week. So I did that. I did that for, for several years. And uh, a wonderful experience. And, but it just seemed like nothing was ever going to change in my life. I was there. And I'd go to church and they'd have the singles and the singles were going to fly to Colorado to go skiing. That wasn't even in my universe you know, because my, my life was taking care of this child. And it didn't seem like anything was going to change, but I just kept sensing the Lord saying, be faithful, be faithful. See, I couldn't see that one day I'd meet Cheryl. I couldn't see that one day I'd have 12 kids. Couldn't see that one day I'd have a church where I'd get to come up and share the Bible. All I knew is every day I had to make a decision. I didn't always want to make that decision, but I had to make that decision. Today, I'm going to be faithful to what it is that God's doing. And I'm so 
grateful for those few years of incredible loneliness, being alone, and uh, not having the freedom to go do whatever I wanted, wherever I wanted, however I wanted. And God used that in my life. And this life that I'm living today, and this ministry, is because of those years where I lived in pretty much obscurity. And I'm so glad. I'm so glad. And if God has you in that place right now, don't miss it. Don't miss it. Let him do the work that he wants to do inside of you because he has something for you that you can't see right now. Does that make sense? Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Father, thank you so much for your word. And thank you for Paul. Lord, we look at Paul and we think he got saved and turned the world upside down, but you took 10 years in the middle of nowhere, away from where the action was to do your great work in him. And we're so thankful, Lord, that he allowed you to do that. Because at a certain point you said it's time and you used him to turn the world upside down. And Father, for us, for those of us who are in those situations right now, that situation, Lord, speak to us by your spirit. Tell us there's something, something beyond. Be faithful today. Be faithful today so we don't miss it. Thank you for this congregation, their love for you, the love for the word. Keep us till we meet again. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and all God's people said. God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.